and welcome to Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an English screenwriter, TV producer and novelist. She's written the bestsellers My Last Duchess, The Fortune Hunter and Victoria. She's curated eight poetry anthologies, including 101 poems that could save your life. And she spent 25 years working as a TV producer, creating and producing shows such as Grand Designs and Escape to the Country. She's the creator of the ITV show Victoria, which has sold to 146 countries. Her latest book is Diva. It's based on the life of legendary opera singer Maria Callas. Daisy Goodwin, welcome to Meet the Writers. Hey, Georgina. Our names are quite similar and I'm often asked if I'm related to you. And I, <laughs> I say that you have you have double the O's and twice the talent. <laughs> That's uh, not true. It's lovely, it's lovely to have you here. And I just wanted to, to get a bit of background because your parents were both very well known. Tell us about them and your childhood. Well, my father was, I mean, he's still alive, a, f- a film producer and he made a number of... Agatha Christie films, I suppose, in the 70s, which have recently been remade, but like Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile that were sort of stuffed with stars and kind of invented as a genre of the star-studded Christie movie. And he also went on to produce Passage to India with David Lean. And my mother was a a writer and called Jocasta Innes, who wrote a seminal cookbook called The Pauper's Cookbook in 1972 because she'd actually left my father at that point and was living with no money. And so she decided to write a book about how to cook delicious food for very little money. And it became successful. And then she went on to become a a style and design writer and wrote a book called Paint Magic, which kind of taught a whole generation about the delights of scumbling, stenciling, stippling what have you. So she was very, she had a keen eye for what worked. And so I guess they were both, I mean, my father's still alive, very creative people. And, you know, they're various step parents too. So it was, there was some ambitious, clever, creative people when I was growing up. And I suppose you take from that what you can. And I, <laughs> I didn't react to against it and go into accountancy. <laughs> I decided that I would uh, go into TV and I worked in TV for quite a while before I actually started writing. Mm. I described you as an English writer, but of course you're half Argentinian. Well, not quite half Argentinian. My grandmother was born in what she would call the Argentine, but she was from an Irish family who had emigrated there in the 1860s. So it's a sort of, it's a tenuous connection. I mean, my father was born in Mumbai. My mother was born in China. So, you know, they were products of, I suppose, the imperial diaspora. And with that kind of background, I mean, your house must have been stuffed full of really interesting people growing up. Yeah, I mean, my father lived above the shop and they had all the costume department in their house in Rotherhithe. So quite often you'd come home from school and there would be someone who introduced themselves as Mia Farrow, and I had no idea who she was. But So there would be film stars coming in and out to get fitted. And so, yes, I guess we did meet a lot of now legendary people. I met Ingrid Bergman, Lauren Bacall. Of course, at the time, it meant less to me than it does now. <laughs> 
You read history at Cambridge and then you went off to Columbia Film School and then started making Mm. arts documentaries for the BBC. When you joined the independent sector, your career just, I mean, you've just Mm. produced the most astonishing work. Grand Designs is a particular favourite of mine. But tell me a little bit about that process. It was fascinating. I suppose you, I had a bit of a purple patch. I I left the BBC where I'd been working for some time and I went to work for a company called Talkback and suddenly everything was expanding. I was able to make programmes for all channels and I just started having ideas and selling them. And I suppose I was just very interested in in selling... I mean, I made programmes that I wanted to watch and Grand Designs was a... A typical thing of I'd watch somebody build a house and I thought this is such a bizarre and extraordinary situation because anybody who builds a house is by definition slightly mad and of course that is I'm afraid the definition of good TV (laughs) because anybody who wants to do something that you know you're sitting at home thinking god I would rather do anything but this it's going to work and and It's a format in a very loose way because most formats are constructed, but this is a format which has its own construction because you've got these people who want to build a house. They will inevitably not have enough money or really have thought it through. And so there is always a moment when they're living in a caravan or there's a muddy field full of icy water and, you know, things are not going to plan. So there are so many low points. I remember the first series... (laughs) the problem with something like this is that building a house never fits a TV schedule. So we would get to the, we got to the end of the first series and none of the houses were ready. So we had to rush around like Potemkin villages and sort of create corners of these houses that look done so that we could actually finish the programmes and say, look, you know, here's this beautiful house. It's all been worth it, hasn't it? And such is the the magic of television. We just about got away with it. So your writing then must have started as writing TV scripts. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, I suppose so. I hadn't, I guess it did. I mean, writing TV scripts is a very different beast to writing novels. I'd always wanted to write a novel, but for some reason I hadn't given myself permission or I felt I couldn't do it. And then when I'd, I wrote a memoir about my childhood, and I think it's, sometimes it's quite important to be able to get over that, to be able to write that out of your system before you start on a novel. It certainly worked for me. Once I'd done that, I felt I could write fiction. And then I started, I wrote my first novel, which was about an American heiress, who was sort of loosely modelled on Consuelo Vanderbilt. And it was a historical novel. I, that, For some reason, that's always been what I've been interested in, is writing about the past. And and it sort of came much more easily than I thought. And all those clichés about how, you know, you sit at your desk and the characters take over, well, that did actually happen. And I thought, oh, well, this is fun. And so I was thrilled when it, you know, it was published, it did well. And of course, when your first book does well, you think, oh, well, this is a breeze. And of course it isn't because it gets harder and harder and harder and every book is a battle. But I'm very pleased to be doing it now. It's mm. it's great. Um, my Last Duchess, is that related to the Robert Browning poem? Yes. I mean, it started off as one book for which that title really worked. And then as I reworked it, my American editor said to me, oh, Daisy, this is like Henry Jones without the boring bits. <laughs> and I realised that I, the sort of slightly gothic ending I'd envisaged wasn't going to work. So it is from the Browning poem, but she doesn't die in the end. 
that book did extremely well. And then you had the difficult thing of the, the next novel. Yes, and my second novel was about Cece, who has now become a bit of a... It's become much more in vogue, who was the Austrian empress in the 19th century. And for me, a fascinating character because she was very modern in lots of ways in that she was very concerned about her how she was portrayed in the media, which is quite interesting in the 1860s. And she was very beautiful. She had this long hair. She was sort of obsessed with her own appearance, but she was also clearly anorexic and I think took quite a lot of cocaine and was extremely unhappy. I mean, there there are parallels with Diana, I think, married to a man who completely didn't understand her. And she had this very sort of restless life and I wrote a book about her coming to England and having an affair with a, a young man called Bay Middleton, who was a real, they're both real people. And theirs was a very sort of interesting relationship. But she was, she was a fascinating character because she was, she was very clever, she was very liberal, but she was sort of imprisoned by her looks and her position. And she was... You know, they've made a film about her recently with Vicky Creeps and there's been a sort of Netflix series and she's she's iconic in Central Europe. If you go to Vienna, there's a Sisi Museum. It's a huge place. But I was, I was sort of fascinated by her because I think she's one of those people who she decided not to have any pictures of her taken after she was age of 30. And she absolutely refused to have her photograph taken after that because she was terrified of ageing. And to that end, everywhere she went, she carried a leather fan so that she could put it up in front of her face so that no-one could take a picture of her. So she was aware of the power of the paparazzi long before such a thing as a paparazzi existed. That's extraordinary. Mm. And your next book, too, another woman in the public eye, Mm. another royal woman in the public Mm. eye, and that's Victoria. Yeah, well, Victoria, I suppose, is a... I find a slightly more sympathetic, it's probably not the word, but a slightly more, I find it easier to empathise with Victoria because Victoria came to the throne when she's 18 and unlike Paul Cece, she's she's the boss because she's a queen regnant. I mean, she's queen in her own right. She's a teenager, she's 18 and she wakes up one morning and she's, she's queen, she's the most powerful woman in the world. And for her, it was a real... It was a real thing, a real coming of age, because up until that point, she had been under the control of her mother, and her mother was very domineering, the ultimate sort of royal stage mother, and her mother's confidant slash lover, John Conroy. And they were desperately hoping that Victoria's uncle, the king, would die a month or a year earlier so that they would have a chance to control Victoria while she was on the throne. But, of course, he he hung on until just after Victoria's 18th birthday. And so she was able to reign without her mother's help. And it's really interesting that the first thing she does when she learns that she's become queen is she sends everybody away and she spends an hour quite alone, she writes in her diary. And you just think, wow, up until that point, she had never been alone. It's extraordinary. And Victoria, of course, is a big crossover for you because it was also made into into a television series. Yes. I mean, I, I sort of wrote the two concurrently because I started writing the book and then I sold the series and so I did the two at the same time. And that was great. I mean, that was a fantastic experience for me. And it's, again, you know, I didn't 
realise how difficult it is <laughs> to get a TV series off the ground because it happened very quickly. And it was a, an um, amazing experience. We had fantastic cast. Including it, yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had, a, I had a brief walk on. Yeah, no, it was a fantastic thing to do. I enjoyed myself enormously. And it's a challenge making that kind of TV. But I'm making it seem both entertaining and also to some extent historically true so that is always an issue but it certainly helps if you've got wonderful actors which we did mm. and weaving through all of this of course is is poetry the yeah. poetry collections that you've put together the anthologies and all really appealing to it seems to me what what you have in both television and and in poetry is this this wonderful way to connect with with every man, with all of us, the poems that you choose are things that, that we all care about. I felt that when I started doing the poetry anthologies, it was simply that ages ago I'd run a, a competition at the BBC to find the nation's favourite poem. And the poem that came out at the top of the poll was If by Roger Kipling, which is not a poem that everybody likes, but... I think the reason so many people voted for it was that it had a sort of very clear prescription. And I think that there are lots of reasons to read poetry, but I think a lot of people like the idea that a poem will give you a sort of handle on how to live your life. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. So what I tried to do was to collect poems that would chime with different parts of one's life. So marriages, weddings divorce, heartbreak, whatever it was, because poets, they live life to the utmost and unacknowledged legislators of the world or what have you, they go to the emotional battlegrounds and they bring back dispatches. So I sort of looked for poems that I felt had some nugget of, there's an awful word, takeaway. And I just, in the end, all you can do is choose poems that you think that work for you. And so that's what I did. And it was it was very successful because I think that poetry, quite rightly, takes itself very seriously. But I think that most people now are not in the habit of reading poetry. So they don't think, oh, I must buy the latest collection by so-and-so. But they will read poetry and they love reading poetry when you say, well, this is the poem you need today when you've broken up with your boyfriend or mm. you're or someone's died, or, or whatever it is. And people were up in arms about that, saying it was sort of lowbrow. But I sort of felt that in a world where poetry is no longer part of our common parlance, you've got to start somewhere. Um, Do you write poetry? No. No, God, no. No, I, I, think, I think that poets are, are very gifted people. They're born, not made. And I... I can't write poetry, but I can recognise a poem that works in that sense. Let's talk about your wonderful new book. It's called <sighs> Diva, and it's based on, on the life of the opera singer Maria Callas. And again, this is an impeccably researched work about this wonderful woman. Mm. And of course, we see this thread now through through all of your, your novels. So sitting down to learn more about it, of course, she was very famous, but you seem to have really got under her skin. How did you get to know Maria? Well, it's interesting. I suppose I first met Maria, as it were, when I was about eight years old, and my mother had a Maria Callas record, which I, we listened to again and again and again. And I don't know, her voice kind of somehow entered my consciousness. So I've always been aware of her music. And then as I sort of grew up, I, I read a bit more about her and I heard all these sort of 
the story of her and Anassis and Jackie Kennedy and all of that. I was sort of too young to actually remember it at the time. And then I started thinking about her as a as a character rather in the in the mould of Victoria and and I suppose Cece. I mean, women who are dealing with struggling with their sort of destiny in a way, with their fate. And what attracted me when I read more about Maria was that she was not she didn't take anything lying down and I I love that about her she had incredible sort of ferocity and she basically in a world of the 50s where you know men were king she fought tooth and nail to get equal billing with all the tenors to get as much if not more money than even a conductor like von Karajan I mean so she was incredibly ahead of her time in that sense Mm. And I suppose the reason that I thought, oh, no, I must write a novel about her was because I felt that there was a sense in which if people know about Maria Callas, they think, oh, incredible singer, but tragic life. And I sort of thought, well, was her life tragic? And yes, it had periods of great unhappiness. But on the other hand, she's still the best-selling opera singer of all time. I mean, I think she's still Warner Brothers, Warner Music's best-selling classical artist, which is amazing Mm -hmm. and I think that in many ways her life was a sort of resounding success yes she had a difficult mother a difficult childhood and she had a unsatisfactory relationship with Anassis at the end it ended badly but I think in many ways she had a spectacular life Mm -hmm. and I suppose I wanted to resurrect that and I wanted to write the book from the point of view really of a female genius. And I think we don't really acknowledge that when we think of Callas. We think of her as this sort of diva, but we don't really think of diva, as we should think of it, as a goddess. We think of her as a sort of troubled woman. And I I think that's all wrong. So I wanted to kind of write about this amazing talent and the struggles it took to have that talent and the fact that if you're a singer of her calibre, you know that your days are numbered, that you, you're like a footballer or a ballerina or anybody who's got this incredible physical gift, it's not going to last forever. Mm. And so that really is the sort of, there's a sort of ticking clock in my book, which is really how long is the voice going to last? And, of course, she had an uneasy relationship with her body. She was lost a lot of weight in, in later life. There was a, a rumour, I remember, that she'd swallowed a tapeworm in order to do that. Yeah, I mean... When we say uneasy, I think actually, I think people have exaggerated this. She's not a Judy Garland who was forced to lose weight. She decided she was quite slim as a teenager and then in Athens. And then she came to Italy and she put on a lot of weight, too much pasta. And then I think she went to La Scala and she was cast as Violetta in La Traviata. And she was working with Visconti, this great opera director. She decided to, she went to see Roman Holiday and she saw Audrey Hepburn in that and thought, "Uh aha, I want to look like that. And I think it wasn't so much a sort of a self-loathing thing. I think she just made a conscious decision, like many performers do, that in order to convincingly play the role of a consumptive heroine, she would need to lose the weight because at that point she was about 220 pounds. So she lost about 60 pounds through eating, as far as I can make out, a lot of steak to tar. 
I think it was a willpower thing. I don't think it was a kind of anguished, you know, I hate my body, I want to starve myself into submission, partly because she had this incredible voice and she would never have done anything that would have endangered her voice. So I think it was a very deliberate... It was it was like De Niro putting on weight for Raging Bull or, or whatever. She decided, I've got, to, I've got to lose the weight in order to be the best possible performer that I can be so I can look the part as well as have this incredible mm. voice. And it's that weight loss that really put her into the stratosphere because suddenly she not only could sing with this incredible voice, but her acting took on a whole new dimension because she was credibly a kind of consumptive heroine. She stepped out of the sort of diva mould where a very statuesque woman stands in the middle of the stage and sings, you know, what they used to call park and bark. And <laughs> and and Maria was acted with every fibre of her being and that's what made her so amazing and so successful and that's mm. why people would sleep in the streets in the freezing cold to see her perform. And what about the stories of her, the famous rivalries and her bad behaviour and, and so on? Again, I, I would say that all the stories about Maria tend to kind of exaggerate her bad behaviour. And we remember it because it's a woman behaving badly. Now, if it was a man behaving badly, you know, tenors were tenors used to grope sopranos on stage and force themselves. I mean, there was, there was some really bad behaviour by tenors, which is forgotten because they were men. But... Women, when women get above themselves, as it were, they are castigated and told that they are unsconscionable. And I I think that Maria was a woman of a volatile temper and so forth, but I don't think she did anything particularly bad. I think that the opera world at that time was at a fever pitch of excitement because you, you've got her, you've got Tibaldi, you've got these sort of rival sopranos and... In Milan, they would have rival fan groups, clacks, who would come and applaud or boo their rivals. And so it was, a, it was like a football game, an opera performance. So there was a lot of sort of drama on top of the drama at all the performances. And obviously that makes for a total theatrical experience. And yes, I'm sure she... I mean, there's one particular example I write about the book. She got a reputation for cancelling at the last minute. But... That is something that opera singers will always do, have always done, because your voice is your your instrument. And if you've got a cold or you've got anything wrong with it, you can't sing. You don't want to sing. You don't want to you don't want to kind of reach for a note for it not to be there, mm. which is of course every singer's worst nightmare. And I think about the thing about opera singers is that we forget they're like they are running a marathon while in full makeup in corset. I mean it's an extraordinary feat what they do. And so you can see that if you wake up and you're not feeling tip-top, you might not want to go there. Mm, mm. Why did her career end prematurely? Well, her career ended. I mean, it didn't end. It sort of dwindled because she could no longer... Her voice began to go, and it began to go earlier than it probably should have done. So she... I'd say by her mid-late 30s, it was beginning to... Her voice was beginning to fail her. She knew that you know, there's this famous performance she gave of Norma at Rome at the Rome Opera House where suddenly in the second act she knew that it wasn't she couldn't get the high notes and she had to stop in the middle of a performance, which is a sort of terrible thing to do, and it caused a riot. And I think after that she became terrified 
that her voice would fail her. And she knew that there weren't going to be that many more great performances left. So she started to ration them. Because I think before that, she'd sung all the time, partly because she could and partly because her husband and manager was just cramming it all in, trying to make as much money as possible. And then when she meets Anassis, she starts taking it a bit more slowly. But she meets Anassis in 1959 and she gives one of her greatest performances, in my view, in 1963, 1963, 1964, when she sings Tosca at Covent Garden. And that's an amazing performance because even though vocally it may not be tip-top, it's got such performative power. She really, really pulls it off. So mm. I think I think there's a tendency in the opera world to, to think that opera is simply about the voice but I think if you look at Maria it's about the performance it's about making it feel alive and she was she was astonishing at doing that mm. and then I mean you certainly made everything feel alive to me I was on the yacht I was in the <laughs> opera houses meeting all these extraordinary people Franco Zeffirelli the Windsors and so yeah. on and then the desperately sad love affair really with with Anassas and his infidelity and his lack of commitment and it all just is brought together so so beautifully so thank you so much Daisy and just before we go talking about all of these strong women and you yourself clearly one of them women, <laughs> women standing up for themselves and women women really doing the right thing which is something that you've been in the public eye for doing very recently and I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about Daniel Korski well <laughs> yes I about 10 years ago when I was still working television I went to Downing Street for a meeting with someone called Daniel Korski who was a spad we had a meeting to talk about some tv program in Mrs. Thatcher's drawing room. And at the end of the... He was, he was sort of bizarrely flirtatious throughout. And at the end of the meeting, he put his hand on my breast and I said, what earth are you doing? <laughs> and he removed his hand and looked sort of rather shamefaced. And it was a funny story. And I sort of went home and told people about it. But I didn't, I didn't feel particularly upset about it but I, I was I was just amazed really that such a thing could happen in Downing Street such an inappropriate thing in a place like that from a man who'd asked me there for a business meeting I, I mean I was sort of I was completely sort of astonished by it but it didn't occur to me really to do anything about it which I now feel was a mistake and then later I I discovered that this man was running for mayor a Tory candidate for mayor and had put himself forward and a few people who knew about my history with him said, well, are you going to say anything about it? And it was a tricky one because obviously once you come forward about this stuff, there is, there is to some extent some victim blaming. You know, I knew that they would put pictures of me looking busty out there and, and people would uh, sort of draw their own conclusions. But I decided it had to be done because, you know, I have two daughters and I think the world is changing and the only way we can really ensure that it changes is if women speak out about behaviour like this. Because, yes, it could have been a one-time thing, but as it turned out, once I'd written an article in the paper naming him as some, as the man who'd who'd done this to me, I was contacted by a clutch of other women to whom exactly the same thing had happened. I mean, not exactly, but he 
inappropriately touch them. And that's the point, that men like that, sexual harassers, people who don't have boundaries and who enjoy using their power to molest women, they don't do it once, they do it many times. And it's very important that women speak out about these things because unless you do, you won't know who else has had the same problem and including women who one woman who he'd assaulted in a rather more serious way so I felt it was sort of it's a difficult thing to talk about these things because you don't really want to talk about endlessly about what it's like to have your breast touched or whatever and you don't really want to make yourself in any way the victim which I'm not but I'm glad that I did because Two days after I went public, he resigned as a candidate for the Tory mayoral race. And I'm pleased about that because I don't think a man like that should be in the position of being in charge of women and girls in the capital. It's just not right. Absolutely. Well, that's certainly something that I'm sure Maria and indeed <laughs> Cece and Victoria would would have agreed with. Daisy, thank you so much for, for coming coming on to speak to us. My pleasure. That is Daisy Goodwin. The book is Diva. It's published by Head of Zeus and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the producer of the show, Tamsin Howard. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.